And I'm Allison Bernier. This week, we have a very special occasion where we are doing our first two-parter. Yes. And our subject is Charles Yeah, so we were going to do a one-parter, and then Esther and I both sort of just texted each other, and we're like, oh, oh, oh man, did we underestimate yeah. how much podcasting material there was for this? Yeah, we both have some... We'll say light procrastination tendencies. <laughs> That's crazy. What are you talking about, Astra? <laughs> Usually I can, like, bang out some notes the day of, yep. and it's like, it's good. I mean, I think it's good. It's yeah, good. I think we're pretty well-researched. Can't really do that with Charles Manson. No, fun fact, um, we had we didn't know. Hmm? So, uh, there are a couple of things that I want to say, like, up front before we get started. Um... One, this will contain discussions of lots of upsetting things. So many, many many upsetting upsetting things. things Covering a lot of different areas. So if you need to dip out for these episodes, that is totally fine. Definitely. Um, But if you are familiar at all with the Nansen family, you know, you should kind of know what to expect. The second thing I want to say is that... um, I think that this is a very, it's very hard to, like, get the quote-unquote facts right, because a mm-hmm. lot of this relies on um, accounts from people like Manson himself, uh, members of his family who are on drugs of doing LSD, like, every single day of their lives, um, Vincent Bugliosi, who I don't think that either of us really knew until pretty recently that he was the prosecutor mm-hmm. and the author of like the foremost book on yeah that's messed messed up that's messed up so i think we're gonna do the best we can to kind of cover a lot of our bases and kind of stay um you know as unbiased as we uh, can as unbiased as we can but you know it's it, it is difficult for sure um the last thing i want to say and this is a little controversial allison um, is that I don't think that Charles Manson is a big, scary, boogeyman, like, criminal mastermind. Interesting. What's what's your thought? I think that he was a um, racist misogynist mm. who was Clear. very, very good at manipulating people mm. and happened to sort of come into that at a time in, like, the history of the United States or a lot of people were sort of ripe for being manipulated. Yes. But I think that a lot of this, like, you know, we'll get into, like, Helter Skelter and, like, all of that mm. stuff, but, like, a lot of this narrative around him, in my opinion, was constructed by Vincent Bugliosi in order yeah. to prosecute him, which we will get much more into in part two. Definitely. Cool. <laughs> so, Charles Manson was born on November 12th, 1934, to... 16-year-old Kathleen Manson Bower Cavender in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was named Charles Miles Maddox. Mm-hmm. His biological father is probably a man named Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Jr. Lots of, That's lots a of names in the 30s and 40s. Asuka, and are we talking Colonel like that was his military rank? Or well, is, are we talking Colonel like that was... So... Kathleen filed a paternity suit against him in 1937 for um, abandoning her, essentially. Manson probably never met him or knew him. 
Um, he was a con artist. He mm. let Kathleen believe that he was an army colonel when that was just oh, his no. first name. <laughs> um, so she married William Eugene Manson before Manson was even born, but she was like pretty pregnant at the time. Okay. Um, they got divorced very quickly afterwards. Uh, she often would leave Manson with babysitters while she went drinking. And in 1939, she was arrested with her brother Luther for assault and robbery. And she was sentenced to five years of imprisonment. Which, like, if I was 16 in 19, in the 1930s and, like, got tricked by a dude and, like, had a baby, I would probably be out drinking. Like, like every night. Every, every night. So, Charles was placed with his aunt and uncle in West Virginia. And his mother was released on parole when he was eight. And he said this was the happiest time of his life when she mm-hmm. came home and was, was with him for a little while. Um, Manson was a truant, and Kathleen would spend her evenings drinking. She was arrested again, but was not convicted. And then they moved to Indianapolis, and she was married again in 1943. At 13, Manson was placed in the first of would be many, so many, many like boys' homes and juvenile facilities. Yeah, and so while his mom was in prison, he lived with like his aunt and uncle, right? Well, yes. so to be close to her and was terrible to his female cousin, if I yes. understand it right. So like, not off to a good start for no. Manson. No, and um, his mother, I think, placed him in the school. Uh, and I, I do have some of the names of the schools, but I'm not going to try to do that because, again, no. there are, like, 15 of them. So. And, and they're hopefully, hopefully all closed. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, so this school was a school for boys in Indiana. It was um, run by Catholic priests. Always a good start. It was a very strict school where the tiniest infractions meant you would be beaten with a paddle or with a water sure. trap by the priests. Manson ran away. His mother returned him, which I'm sure is very good for a child's development. Felt like betrayal from the person yeah. you were supposed to trust. Yeah. Um, and then 10 months later, he ran away again. And at sure. 14, he took some money he found while robbing a grocery store and used it to rent a room in Indianapolis's Skid Row, which Skid Row is like, I don't know that they call places Skid Row anymore, but they used to call that, like, it was the line between the more affluent part mm-hmm. of the city and the more, like, very poor working No, class. and it does seem like if you were to call something Skid Row now, you're just sort of asking for it to be a place where crime is really prevalent, yeah. so it seems like a Skid bad Row. plan. Yeah. Um, he got a job, so he mm-hmm. became gainfully employed. Always um, good when you're a young teenager. Living by yourself in the uh, sketchy part no of town. No problems are going to come out of that at all. But he very quickly started stealing and was sent to another juvenile facility in Nebraska. He escaped with another boy and committed several armed robberies. And he was caught and sent to another boy's school back good. in Good. According to Manson... He was raped there by other students at the encouragement of the staff members and was mm. repeatedly beaten. And this is sort of the start of the the sort of through line of like sexual assaults and just really like awful stuff in that area that kind of continues through Manson's life. And what he is done to him, he we see him repeatedly dole out in more extreme versions yeah. to others. 
So he ran away from that school 18 times. Sure. Which I gotta say, you get a little better at running away, bud. Like, no, honestly. Like, if you gotta do it 18 <laughs> times, they keep catching you. Like, <laughs> you got sharpen the skills. So he escaped in 1951, and at this point he's 17, mm-hmm. with two other boys. And it was pretty free and clear, except that they made the mistake of driving stolen cars across state lines, which is a federal crime, which sort of elevated um, the level of punishment that he was getting in the system. So he was sent to the D.C. Training School for Boys, Mm -hmm. which is a more federal, I think a federal um, boys school. And one sort of sneak peek for next week is, so Bugliosi, who has his whole, like, deal hypothesized in the book Helter Skelter, which is, like, ethically dicey that the prosecutor was the one who wrote the foremost text, but he, he hypothesized that Manson, having been institutionalized for so long and, like, wanting that structure committed federal crimes on purpose Mm. because it would more likely result in longer sentences and things of that nature that is really interesting because there is a a moment that we'll we'll, get to pretty soon near like the end of his this like long period of imprisonment um so at this at this other school for boys he was given an aptitude test he was, I mean, again, again, this is a 1940s aptitude uh, so, test, so um, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, he was determined to be illiterate, but had an above-average IQ, mm-hmm. and was deemed by his caseworker to be aggressively antisocial, which I mean, sounds legit. <laughs> I mean, who's not, you know? Um, he was transferred to a minimum security prison, and he had a parole hearing scheduled but was caught raping a boy at knife point, which is is very interesting for what you just said, because um, this happens quite frequently. He will have like a parole hearing coming up and then he'll get caught doing something. Something that gets the parole hearing canceled. And so it will get canceled. Uh, And so this act had him transferred to a federal prison in Virginia. Hmm. And uh, on his record there, it said that he committed eight serious disciplinary offenses, three involving homosexual acts. Which is, I'm assuming, 1940s code for he raped a boy. Yes. No, I'm guessing it wasn't consensual. Yeah. I, I think that they just categorized Everything. anything yeah. under, the same, um, under, under the same umbrella. So Manson was transferred again and released early on good behavior in 1954 when he was 20. He married a hospital waitress named Rosalie Jean Willis in 1955. Mm-hmm. He stole a car and drove to Los Angeles with her and was arrested again for driving a stolen car across state lines. So instead of being imprisoned this time, however, after he was given a psych evaluation, the judge only gave him five years probation. Interesting. But this probation was revoked when he failed to show up at a hearing. So he was sentenced to three years in California prison. Rosalie gave birth to Charles Manson Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just say I'm not surprised at all that he that the, it was Charles Manson Jr. Yeah. That tracks just so hard. Do you that think he, that guy changed his name? I would think. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is 1954, so he would have been like in his 20s and things yeah. kicked off. 
Yeah, they're like trying to like him in college, like trying to like date, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm Charles Manson Jr." <laughs> so Rosalie stopped visiting Charles when he was in prison because she started living with another man. He learned this, I think, from his mother. Sure. Who was visiting him at the time? Um, two weeks before the parole hearing, which is, again, this is maybe some more evidence mm. towards huh. what we're saying. He tried to escape. Uh, failed, so parole was denied. Um, he was not paroled until 1958, and what I sort of wanted to mention was that um, when he was up for parole, at this time he had been in prison, in some kind of prison for so long, that he actually asked, hey, can I just stay here? Cause, like, yeah. I don't really know. I don't really know how to not <laughs> like, be in prison at like, this point. Like, this is my home. I'm yeah, which is in... Same. And the judge was like, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Um, he divorced Rosalie mm-hmm. and uh, started trafficking a 16-year-old girl. Just like, yikes. Yikes. Doesn't really cut it, but yikes. In 1959, he was charged with attempting to cash a forged U.S. Treasury check. Mm-hmm. He received a suspended sentence after a young woman named Leona with an arrest record for prostitution said that they were in love and that they would marry if he was free. Interesting. And they did get married, probably not out of, like, love, love, but because she would not be able to testify against him. Yep. Love that. And though that was another thing. The check was another one that um, they mentioned was it was a U.S. Treasury check. And so it carried a really strict penalty versus just, like, a personal check. Yeah. Yeah, it does seem... There does seem to be a degree of intentionality. Yeah. So he took Leona and another woman to New Mexico for prostitution. Um, which, by the way, I want to make a note that, like, you know, I, you know, we kind of, we call sex workers sex workers. But in this context, to me, there is a degree of non, non-consensuality non yeah. going on yeah. here. No, like a, a, like a sex worker is a very valid, like, choice to do for your job, if that's what right. you want to do. But, but like, if is, someone's forcing you to do it, that's a whole different thing. This is a very manipulative man who, like basically, yeah, ascended to where he thought out of, like, manipulating and abusing woman after Mm. woman after woman. So, he was arrested in Texas and was ordered to serve his 10-year sentence for the check cashing charge. Yep. And was not released until 1967. 10 years for a check cashing charge seems really intense. It's very intense. Even, like, even just, like, federal, like, federal sentences are, like, a little intense at their core, but, like, that's a lot. Well, I wonder if his record had anything to do with, Great point. Just, like, hey, you clearly want to be in prison, so here's the max sentence. And so I actually think I was wrong, so it was at this point when he was released in 67, he had spent over half his life in prison and was like, hey... I'd like to stay in prison. The judge was like, no. <laughs> no. Imagine if the judge had said yes. What could have been avoided? What a different world we'd be living in. So this is sort of the, the turning point, kind of where we begin to start the, the Manson family stuff. The, uh, the descent. The descent, yes. So Manson moved to San Francisco, and he got an apartment. Um, he moved in with a student named Mary Brunner. And convinced her to let other women live with them. 
The yeah. number of women living with them eventually rose to 18. 18. Mary was considered the first recruit of the family. Yeah. He established himself as a guru in 1967, which was, of course, the Summer of Love, the sort of hippie social movement that was yep. going on in the West Coast. Um, so it was much easier than even if you were like this disgusting, unwashed... Like oh, almost, <laughs> almost preferable almost, if you're disgusting yes. and unwashed to be convinced girls that you're a guru. Exactly. So he gained a large group of followers pretty quickly mm-hmm. and started calling himself Charles Manson. He taught his followers that they were reincarnations of the original Christians and uh, sure. styled himself as the reincarnation of Christ. And the Manson family began roaming around in a van along the West Coast. They did this for a while, and then they lived in Topanga Canyon, where a community of hippies had sprung up. Uh, Topanga Canyon was very undeveloped at this point. Mm -hmm. The roads were unpaved, and people living out there maintained the houses themselves. A hippie's, like, wet dream. Yes. (laughs) Um, And Mary Brunner gave birth to a son in 1968. So he has two children that we know of at this point. Okay. So now... We started getting to some interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. So Charles Manson met Dennis Wilson, okay, a member of the Beach Boys. Ooh. The way that they met was that um, Dennis Wilson picked up two of the women of the Manson family while they were hitchhiking and like on drugs. Interesting. And he brought them back to his house to like give them a place to. Can I just say I'm really glad hitchhiking seems to be a thing of the past. <laughs> um. So he brought these women back to his house. And he left, and when he came back, uh, Manson was standing in his driveway. Sure. And also had brought 12 more members of the family to the house, mostly women. And uh, the way that this this, uh, encounter is said to have gone is that Wilson saw this you know, very scary-looking, scraggly dude. Just like this creepy little short guy. He was like, hey, are you gonna hurt me? And Manson was like, no, no, man, and started kissing his feet. But apparently that was enough for Wilson. It's because like, they, I was sold. <laughs> they started hanging out. No. And the family started staying at Wilson's house. So is it, like, confirmed that Wilson was a member of the Charles Manson family? I don't know that he was so much a member. Kind of had a way of making it very hard to say no to him. Interesting. And so he, I think that he just kind of brought all these people and were just like, hey, man. And he just, like, never left. He yeah. couldn't say that. Exactly. Um, Wilson ended up paying around $100,000 for various expenses. Really? While the family was there, including gonorrhea treatment <laughs> and an uninsured... As you say, gonorrhea treatment, not for him. He paid for the treatment of... All the Manson family. family. And um, a, he also had to pay for a uninsured car of his that they wrecked. He also paid for Manson to have studio time to record his music. That's amazing. I like... Oh my gosh. And... Um, this is really gross, but the women would essentially serve them while they hung out. Like, they would just be chilling, and the women would, like, bring them drinks and make them food. That is so gross. And probably have sex with them. And, like, no, I hate disgusting. that. 
I mean, I love a good Beach Bo- Beach Boys like tune as much as the next girl, but like that's <laughs> dicey. Also, and this is this is very interesting. Introduced Manson to various business acquaintances of his, mm-hmm. including a man who was the then landlord of the house where Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate were living. Yep. And when Dennis Wilson's lease expired, he moved out and the family didn't. And so they were forcibly evicted by the landlord of that house. Classic move. So in August of 1968, the Manson family needed a place to live. So Mm -hmm. Manson moved them into a place called Spawn Ranch, which had once been a movie and TV set for Westerns, but was now falling apart. It didn't really get used that much anymore. And it's like, it's not a house. It was a TV set that wasn't supposed to, like, have people right. straight so, up live there. So it was, like, several buildings yeah. that were, like, not really... Not really, like, they were meant to be, like, disposable. And, like, exactly. Yeah. Not really up, up to any kind of code, probably. No. Nope. <laughs> the owner of Spawn Ranch, George Spawn, was 80 mm-hmm. and nearly blind. Sure. And this is very upsetting to me. Um, female members of the family did chores on the ranch and also had sex with Spawn on Manson's orders. Ugh. Anytime sex on the insert name here's orders is never a good sentence. No. no. Um, and I, I actually want to talk about this and I want to get your sort of thoughts on this for a second because there's been a lot of sort of, you know, of course people have discussed the Manson family in the case. Sure ad nauseum for for years but you know people say oh like you know why would all these women like you know they, like they were they, they were voluntarily there at least initially yeah right like yeah and these were a lot of women who were college graduates or yeah. in college you know from like and this is all like in air quotes obviously because like I'm, you know, I'm not going to pass, like, judgments on... Sure. Yeah, exactly. No matter what someone's background is, but these are all, like, college-educated women who um, were, like, you know, came from, like, you know, good families. Sure. Were, like, you know, very well-adjusted. Sure. And, you know, responsible. And then had this total shift in... Definitely. And it's, like, it's always that mentality of, like, oh, I could never fall for something like that. You know, it's, like, looking at it from this... Pat, like looking at it with the lens of the past and knowing what happened, it's so easy to be like, Oh, that's crazy that they like fell for that. I would never, but it's like, I think a lot of the people, like, man, with Manson being who he was and having so much of the like the abuse in the past and like learning to manipulate people to get what they want, you're so easily able to find these like traumas and be like, I know exactly how to make you feel better about that trauma and then that like they feel like he's the only person in the world that sees them and like and that was part of the whole like guru thing like yeah like I see you like you're free from all the like this like stuff that society puts on you because being a woman in 1968 sucked it sucked and then like I have to imagine like drugs definitely played a not insignificant role in that process is like and that's something that Bugliosi mentions in the book a lot, too, is, like, he would get them in and, like, 
sort of ply them with drugs and sex and it was like it felt like they were unrepressed you know from the like repression of being a woman in 1968 like yeah this is like the way for you to be yeah to be free but and then at the same time is making them do all the chores (laughs) and like take care of the like little filthy kids that are running around and have sex with people on his orders but like you know, if you think about it, how, like, how crushing it must have been to be a woman existing in regular society. Like, women no, weren't allowed to imagine. get their own credit card until 1974. Thank you for Peter Ginsburg. Honestly. Like, courts didn't recognize sexual harassment in the workplace until the 70s. Women could still be fired for being pregnant. Like, society also sucked. <laughs> Very badly. So, like, I, I think that you know, I would never say, yeah, I don't, I don't know how, like, that could happen to them. Because, like, I have no, and you and I have no idea what no. it was, I mean, being a woman now is hard. You um, and I have no idea what it was being like. 50, to, 50 years ago, like, I can't, no idea. No idea. No. So I just had to go on that little tangent for a second. I'm with you. <laughs> so, um, a man named Tex Watson joined the family at this point, and I'm mentioning this because he was a young Texan who played a pivotal role in the murders. Before I get into the crimes themselves, there's like one more little piece that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And it's um, that Manson had previously run into Sharon Tate. Yes. Which I didn't know before we started researching. I think that's bonkers. Yeah. So in 1969, he entered the property uninvited because he had known it to be the residence of another guy that he had met, I believe, through Dennis Wilson. Yeah. Um, But that guy was only the previous tenant, and the tenants were now Tate and Polanski. Yeah. Uh, He was was met by a photographer who was making a documentary um, about Polanski. And was there to photograph Sharon Tate before her departure for Rome the next day. And he'd seen Manson through the window and went out to ask him what he wanted. Manson told him that he was looking for someone. The, and the photographer didn't recognize the name. And he said, no. The photographer said, no, Roman Polanski lives here. And he told Manson to try the back alley, which he meant the path to the guest house. He was really, like, concerned about this random stranger, yeah. like, being on the property. Which, so I, you know, fair. fair. Fair, So I think that he was, like, kind of trying to, like, get him, him out him and, off, yeah. like, distract him. And so, according to this, this account, Tate then appeared in the house's front door and asked the photographer who was calling, and the photographer said that a man was looking for someone. And he and Tate stayed where they were, while Manson went back to the guest house, returned a minute or two later, and then left. Mm-hmm. And that evening, Manson returned to the property again and went back to the guest house. He entered the enclosed porch and he spoke with Altabelli, who was the landlord yeah. of the property. And can I just say, I don't ever want to hear someone complain about millennials and rent again. <laughs> Because so I pay I pay sixteen hundred dollars in rent right now for a very tiny two bedroom apartment, and this whole this whole entire like complex with a very large house in like a rich area in California in a guest house, they paid twelve hundred dollars in rent for this whole house. Oh my god! And for for with I'm sure like five bedrooms enough room to entertain six people like. 
So I was, when I found out that out, I was like, okay, I'm actually done talking to old people about, about the yeah, housing market. Absolutely. I, I pay almost double that. For, for two, a, three bedrooms. For a three-bedroom apartment yeah. in Portland, Maine. Like, I'm upset. So this was consistent with um, Bugliosi's findings mm-hmm. that Manson had been on the yeah. Tate Polanski yeah. property. Before, like prior to the, the crimes. The landlord told Manson, the guy you're looking for doesn't live here anymore. He told Manson he didn't know the address even though he did. Later, the landlord said that, you know, he had met Manson through Dennis Wilson. So essentially, Manson came looking for this guy who didn't live here anymore. Mm-hmm. The landlord of this property, they weren't friends. He had only met him like yeah. one time and kind of was kind of like putting him off. Wasn't like, you know, get the fuck out of here, but was like kind of. Suddenly being like, hey, get the fuck out of here. Like, yeah. But the important part was that um, he saw Sharon Tate like, mm-hmm. and he knew that the guy he was looking for didn't live there anymore. Yeah. And the landlord asked that Manson not disturb his tenants anymore. Reasonable. And the next day, he flew with Sharon Tate to Rome. According to him, Tate asked him whether that creepy looking guy had gone back to the guest house the day before. Okay. Just like, a little chilling. Now we have a just a couple other crimes before we get to the big stuff. Mm-hmm. So Tex Watson robbed a drug dealer named Bernard Crow in 1969. Yep. Crow was a black man. According to Watson, again, I have to take everything with a grain of salt. These people were doing so many drugs all the time. All the time. Apparently Crow allegedly threatened to retaliate for this robbery and wipe out the entire family. Okay. Sure. So Charles Manson went to Crow's house and shot him. Naturally. And believed that he'd killed him when reports of a dead Black Panther were in the news. Even though Crow wasn't a panther, Manson was just racist. (laughs) Um, And Manson thought that there was going to be a retaliation from the Black Panthers. Okay. Again, Crow, not a panther. Not a Black Panther. uh, And set up night patrols of armed guards. Sure. A perfectly reasonable thing to do. Sure, sure, sure. And I'll I'll talk about um I'll talk about Helter Skelter in a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah I'll talk about that in a little bit. If you don't know, it's basically related. The the Black Panthers play like a heavy role in, yep. in that um, delusion. <laughs> but I think that this kind of just shows that he was just a regular regular seventies racist. Classic. Move. Like when you don't even know, you don't even care to learn like the details of the guy that you're shooting in his house. Yeah, like, it's like God. Um, and so now we are going to talk about poor Gary Allen Hinman. So Gary Allen Hinman was a music teacher and a PhD student mm-hmm. who had befriended members of the family. Who's kind of gotten the like a lot of people had, you know, just met this guy and was like, hey, this is kind of fun. Yeah, out with them. Because I can imagine Fun, like, you, free love guy. Yeah, exactly. yeah, Back then, you spend, like, a day or two, and you're like, yeah, this is cool. Like, yeah. But um, Manson believed that Hinman was wealthy and had a lot of, like, assets and stuff. You and know, like, yeah. every PhD student I've ever met just rolling in cash. He sent members of the family to Hinman's house to convince him mm. to join the family and turn over all of his assets to Manson. And Hinman is like, sorry, what assets? Yeah. <laughs> um, they held him hostage for two days. Holy fuck. 
and he like held out and refused like because he he didn't have any money to turn over. Where Manson showed up, was like, what the fuck is taking so long? And ordered Hinman to be killed. Sure. So he was. And they used Hinman's blood to write political piggy on the wall and to draw a Black Panther symbol on the wall. Oh. Again, regular racist. Just regular old, not actually capable of inciting a race war, just racist. They were just plain old racist hippies. So, in magazine interviews, one of the members of the family who was there, who, like, killed Hinman, said that he had actually gone there to recover money paid to Hinman for drugs that were supposedly bad. Mm-hmm. And that the other members of the family went along, didn't, didn't know what was going on. Another member of the family in her autobiography said that Manson directly told them all to go to Hinman's and get the supposed inheritance that he had of $21,000. And she said that two days earlier, Manson had told her privately that if she wanted to do something important, she could kill Hinman and get his money. Okay. Uh, And this man who was at the murder, Beausoleil, was arrested after he was caught driving Hinman's car. And police found the, the murder weapon in the tire well. So nobody ever said that these people were <laughs> excellent criminals. So now we're going to talk about the Tate murders. Yep. August 8th, 1969. Tex Watson took several members of the family back to the house of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. Watson claims that Manson had instructed him to go to the house, destroy everyone in it, and to do it as gruesomely as you can. And he told the women to do what Watson told them to do. The people at the house that evening were Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant. Yes. Her friend, Jay Sebring, a noted celebrity hairstylist, uh, a friend of Polanski, and that uh, the friend's girlfriend, who was the heir to the Folger's coffee fortune and the daughter of Peter Folger. Polanski at the time was in Europe working on a movie. They arrived just past midnight and Watson climbed a telephone pole near the entrance gate and cut the phone line. The murderers backed their car to the bottom of the hill, and they walked back up to the house. They thought that the gate might be electrified, so they climbed a embankment and entered the grounds that way. Headlights approached them from within the property, and so Watson ordered the women to lie in the bushes, and he stepped out and stopped the car. Um, Stephen Parent a young man who'd been visiting the property's caretaker was the driver of the car and Watson um, leveled a revolver at him. Uh, He begged Watson not to hurt him, said he wasn't going to say anything. Uh, Watson uh, lunged at him, uh, slashed him across the hand with a knife, took his watch, and then shot him four times in the chest and abdomen. Yeah, like crazy overkill. Crazy overkill. And then ordered the women to help him push the car up the driveway so that the people in the house, you know, would, would like, think that he had left. Mm-hmm. Watson then cut the screen of a window and told uh, Linda Kasabian, a member of the family, to keep watch down by the gate. Um, she walked over to the car and waited. So Watson removed the screen from the window and let... Atkins and Krenwinkel, yeah. members of the family, into the house through the front door. So he woke Frankowski up and said, and Frankowski was like, what are you doing here? And Watson apparently replied, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's okay. business. Which I'm sure was terrifying at the time. No, for sure. Reading that in retrospect, it's like, shut up. 
Like, uh, no, honestly, like if if someone were to do that to me, and be like, I'm dead in, in the dead of like, night, I'm woken up, up and I'm you woke you up, like but, terrifying. But now, fucking shut up, text. Like, oh my god, yeah. And so they took, they found the other three occupants of the house and forced them into the living room. Uh, Watson tied Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring together um, with rope, and then swung it over the ceiling beams of the living room. And Jay Sebring said, hey, she's pregnant. Like, you need to, like, don't do this. And so Watson shot him. No, that's just, like, that's a part of it that bumps me out so much. It's just, like, these, this eight and a half months pregnant, like, woman. Her husband was away. Like, the friends were just trying to keep her comfortable and keep her company. And this is what happens. Yeah. Folger... It's just his heiress yeah. to the coffee company was taken back to her bedroom for a purse and gave the murderers $70. Sure. And then uh, Jay Sebring, who had already been shot, was stabbed many times yep. by Watson. Oh, like crazy overkill on all of them. Rykowski's hands had been bound with a towel, but he freed himself and started struggling. Uh, he was stabbed several times. He fought his way out of the front door and onto the porch but Watson caught up with him and struck him over the head, stabbed him, and shot him twice. Just, again, insane overkill. Like, yeah. that level of brutality is so completely unnecessary, but, you know, definitely in line with Manson told him, you know, do it as gruesomely as possible. Yeah, they were like, I understand the assignment. So Linda Kasabian, who had been standing watch outside, mm-hmm. heard horrifying sounds uh, and moved towards the house told one of the other members of the family that someone was coming to try to stop the murders. So Folger had escaped and fled out a bedroom door to the pool area, but was caught on the front lawn and was stabbed and uh, a total of 28 times. Rykowski, who's still alive, struggled across the lawn, but Watson continued stabbing him, murdered him, uh, suffered 51 stab wounds, and uh, had been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun. Mm -hmm. So many times that it had bent the barrel off the gun and broke one side off. Oh my god. And uh, Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth, offered herself as a hostage to try to save the life of her unborn child, but was stabbed 16 times and killed. And so I was listening to the Helter Skelter again, and it mentioned, like, if someone had like gotten there in time and given her like a post-mortem like c-section the baby was far along enough that like it would have been okay which is like so heartbreaking so according to watson manson had told the women to leave a sign something mm-hmm. witchy something like, witchy whatever that means and so um atkins wrote pig on the front door and tate's blood she claims that she did this to copycat the scene of Gary Hinman because they wanted to get Bobby Beausoleil out of jail yep. by, you know, if they if it was similar enough so they could say, look, it wasn't him. It wasn't him. Like, the murderer struck him. Yeah. Still out there. That is the tape murder. Then we have the La Bianca murders the next night. The next night. And, like, so I didn't, I should have counted while you were saying them, but, like, text stabbed a human like over a hundred times oh yeah and like so in our minds i think and maybe i'm just a a crazy person so people don't actually think about this as 
not to say I think about it all the time. It's fine. Um, like stabbing a human is the same. Like you need the same amount of force to get through like a watermelon rind. It's not like you're just ripping like a paper. And so that takes so much energy. And then to go do it again the next night. Yeah. Drugs, man. Drugs, like, man. It's really crazy. The, like the way that they elevate your yeah. ability to do just crazy shit like push the human body past like regular capacity i mean tex was like imagine he was like a pretty big guy but still the amount of physicality in like these murders like that he basically did most was part of killing every single person in his house and like no i i for sure agree with you i don't think you're allowed to be nicknamed tex if you're like sub 510 but like (laughs) yeah it's just crazy yeah so the next night, the four murderers, um, including Manson, Leslie Van Houten, and Clem Brogan, went for a drive. Manson was allegedly very displeased with how the yeah. Tate murders had gone. Sure. You know how when you tell your lackeys to murder someone, they do it they wrong? Don't, they do it wrong. Fuck. Um, he told Linda Kasabian to drive to a house that was located next to a place that um, they had gone to a party the year before, which, like... I don't know if it would be better if he was, like, purposefully targeting people, but the fact that he's just so callously, like, yeah, we're just gonna go, like, I, I've, I've just been there before, so. Yeah, which I guess, like, does, in my mind, it does sort of help Bugliosi's race war, like, trying to incite a race war theory where it's just, like, you kind of want to make it seem as random as possible, but also, like, I don't think that was it. I straight up just think Manson was like, I'm angry that I had a bad childhood, so I'm going to make everybody else miserable, too. I like, don't think that he really thought that far ahead. Yeah. <laughs> like, He's like, uh, we need to go kill some more people. Uh, where should we go? Uh, uh, I, um, I, I went there before. We'll go next door. Yeah, like, like, I, oh. I really think it was just that like, I just that like complex of a thought process. Uh, Manson, buddy. So the house that they went to belonged to uh, a man named Leno LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. Which, can I, total tangent, Rosemary LaBianca, beautiful name. Oh, so good. So good. So good. Um, So according to Atkins and Kasabian, Manson disappeared up the driveway and said that he had tied up the house's occupants. According to Tex Watson, he had gone in with Manson to help. Which, like, I don't know how much that... I don't... I'm leaning towards believing Kazanian, but... I don't know. I think that Watson just liked to be involved. He was like, yeah, I was definitely helped. I was was Charlie's favorite. So, the other members of the family entered and Manson ordered they should be killed. Mm -hmm. The the couple. Naturally. uh, He had... Watson had complained to Manson about the inadequacy of the previous night's weapons and sent the women from the kitchen to the bedroom where they had brought Rosemary again. Mm-hmm. He went to the living room and started uh, stabbing Leno LaBianca with a chrome-bladed bayonet. That's... I love that, though. The creativity. It's so extra. So extra. Um, he heard a scuffle in the bedroom and then went in there to discover Rosemary LaBianca uh, keeping the women at bay by swinging the lamp that had been tied around her neck, which is so badass. So freaking badass. Rosemary. Um, And then he stabbed her several times with the bayonet, returned to the living room, and kept attacking Leno. Again, so much, so hard. (laughs) Raquel. 
Like, I don't know what happened to make all these people so angry, but I, we need it to be dialed back. Yeah. He then carved the word war into Leto LaBianca's abdomen. Oh, I hadn't read that. I hadn't heard that. That's yeah. nuts. Watson returned to the bedroom and found Krenwinkel stabbing Rosemary with a knife in the kitchen. Um, she was stabbed approximately 16 times. Ben Houghton claimed at trial that uh, Rosemary was already dead when she stabbed her. Yep. Evidence showed that many of the, ready for this number? Mm-hmm. 41 stab no. wounds had in fact been inflicted post-mortem. Watson then cleaned off the bayonet and showered while Krenwinkle wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on the wall and Helter Skelter on the refrigerator door, all in La Bianca's blood. Can you just, like, imagine being the Beatles when they're like, look, look, pals, we got nothing to do with this. She then gave Lena La Bianca 14 puncture wounds with an ivory-handled carving fork, which she left jetting out of his stomach and planted a steak knife in his throat. Why? So... Nansen drove the other three family members who had left the ranch with him that evening to the home of an actor. He then left them there and drove back to the ranch, leaving the La Bianca killers to hitchhike home. Jesus! According to Linda Kasabian, Manson wanted his followers to murder the actor in his apartment, but Kasabian claims that she thwarted this murder by deliberately knocking on the wrong apartment door and waking a stranger. They abandoned the murder plan and left, but yeah. Damn. I think that's um that's where we're gonna Yeah. We're gonna leave you there for this week and lot to sit with. Lot to sit with, and next week we're going to uh, start with some theories about these murders and then Allison is really gonna dive into what the police thought was going on. Um what happened at trial. And why the police in the seventies sucked. Yeah. Um, but for our legal fun fact of the week, I've got a doozy. I'm going to tell you about the the serial killer or the, the prolific criminal called the Phantom of Hellebron. Fancy okay. it. Also, alternatively, the woman without a face. Oh, my. Yes. Okay. So so the very prolific criminal... Um, I don't know if you guys all watch as much Criminal Minds as I do, but it is it is a prolific addiction. Um, and so we hear on Criminal Minds all the time about how, like, criminals of this, like, nature will, will like, you're kind of, you're a robber, or, like, you're an armed robber, or you're, like, a serial killer, and you kind of do the same crime over and over again. Not her. Not okay. her. She liked to mix it up. She liked to keep it spicy. Awesome. Is she your girl boss? Very hard. Very much. <laughs> That's really, we should change the name of this segment to uh, Criminal Girl Bosses. Um, well, we'll see, though. Okay, okay, so a couple of crimes. Um, and she left her DNA all the fuck over the place. All the fuck over the place. But, like, ha- wasn't in the system. So they were like, oh, sick, we've got DNA. But then, like, wasn't in the system. So they couldn't, they couldn't run it, you know? Um, so a couple of crimes that she was associated with. Um, she left her DNA on the cup after killing a 62-year-old woman um, in Germany. And I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of this German town because I, I, I know my limits. <laughs> um, but this was in 2001. 
Um, and then 2001 and on, she left uh, her DNA on the kitchen drawer after killing a 61-year-old man. Okay, so I'm like, maybe we're getting, like, old people serial killer vibes. Um, but then DNA is on a syringe containing heroin. Just like, yeah. Okay. Um, and then a toy pistol after a robbery of a Vietnamese gemstone trader in France. So mobile, too. A mobile. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then... A stone, some DNA on a stone used for smashing a window uh, in during a burglary, and then like in 2007, um, some DNA left at the at a burglary at an optometrist's office. Like 20 burglaries and thefts of cars and motorbikes all the time. So like, so the police are like, okay, so we have this woman's DNA all all over the place. Who is she? Who is she? And so the investigation was like, oh my god, we need to find this woman. She's committing like numerous, like hundreds and hundreds of crimes over three countries. Like, we need to find her. Oh. And, okay, so I want to see, do you have any guesses about the Phantom of Pile Bronze identity? Oh, man. Um, let me think about this for a second. No, I, I no. really don't. No, okay, <laughs> so curveball. This, the Phantom Heilbronn, was not a criminal at all. She was the uh, person who worked at the cotton swab factory for the crime scene techs who collected DNA. And so, like, she, so the police were like, oh my god, this crazy, like, criminal has done so much stuff. And, like, she works with international international crime. She, like, would change her crews every time she did a new crime. And, like, she'd do it with different people. And all of the people that were caught, they were like, who is the phantom? And they were like, we don't know. We don't know what you're talking about. There was no woman with us. And they were like, you're lying. You're protecting her. And I'm just like, and like Occam's razor was a well accepted theory by two thousands. It's just like yeah. a the a phantom that got hundreds of. She was just a girl contaminated. She was just a girl contaminated and worked at a cotton swap factory. Oh my god! Yeah, and that's uh. How long did it take for this Seven years. <laughs> so could we say an intentional girl? Yeah. Unintentional girl boss for sure. So it was like I re- wanted her to be a girl boss, but really she's just like a girl trying to get a job, like have a Do job. You, uh, she got fired. <laughs> I'm not sure because I don't. What was she doing? Like spitting on the guys. I, I have to imagine it was something that was like enough for that to show up. Yeah. But running her fingers. They over them, yeah, like, just like really like like breathing on them. <laughs> um. But yeah, that's, and then I think that this precipitated sort of a switch to making sure that they were using really specifically designed for collecting DNA and just like really like clearly been sterilized before they get them kind of things for crime scene investigation, which is just awesome. It's really good that they did that. Oh my. Well, that was a very fun fact. Thank you. Yes. So... Yeah, you can find us on Indicted Pod on Instagram. Um, and our Manson Part 2 will be dropping on August 16th. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.